Okay, well, we're officially rolling. Okay, let's do this. You're on the mic. Welcome to the podcast studio. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yes, and you did one before, but it was across the globe. Yeah, funny story. So I got an email from this researcher out in Finland, and he liked my master's thesis. And he reached out and said, hey, Jeremy, I'd love to have you on this podcast I'm starting. I would love to have you talk about uh, your master's thesis and your study that you did with exercise and muscle growth. Nice. Yeah, I, I liked his, what's it called? Just to give him a little. Coaching cues. Yeah. So he is kind of this sports performance coach, and he also does research on the side. And what he does, he has a lot of researchers come on, a lot of sports performance coaches, kind of a, a kind of a slew of people, kind of just like your podcast. And he will have them talk for about 10 minutes and they'll answer one question specific to what they are good at or their specialty. And what was the question that? What is repetition tempo with exercise and how would I utilize repetition tempo with strength and muscle growth? So we hear repetition tempo and I'm thinking I'm doing bench press and that is how quickly I bring the bar from up top down to my chest and then back up. That's yep. one rep. 1000%. Yep. So basically the time in seconds, usually from taking like, we'll use your bench press. So having it at, up at the top and then I'm going to lower it. Let's say that's the, the negative part or the eccentric part for my, my science listeners. So the eccentric portion and then I stop at the bottom and then I move up. And that's the, the positive or the concentric portion of the lifts. Nice. And this applies to everything like the bicep curls and the push-ups. That applies to pretty much every exercise you can think of. Nice, nice, nice. And it was how does rep tempo affect muscle growth? or Muscle growth and strength because there's kind of two different ways that you can go about it. The way I train for muscle growth is going to be different from how I train for strength. Mm, so explain that because a lot of people would think those two are the same thing. Like if my muscle's bigger, then I'm stronger. Yeah, definitely. And that usually, there there is a correlation there. And if I get stronger, I'll typically get bigger. If I get bigger, I'll typically get stronger, but not necessarily. We'll see that throughout the literature, throughout the research that sometimes I will train or I will exercise for a couple of weeks and I might get stronger, but I might not get bigger. So usually mm. when we think of getting stronger with exercise in the first couple of weeks, we attribute that to neural adaptations. So greater motor unit recruitment and just kind of greater neural signaling going on versus if I train for a long period of time, maybe four or five months, we will typically see obviously an increase in the neural component, but also an increase in muscle size. Yeah. And you had said, you had a quote in there that I laughed at. And I think you'll have to remind me if this is your original or if you attributed it to somebody, but this idea of whenever somebody isn't working out, even if they sneeze, they're going to get... They sneeze and grow. Right, they sneeze and grow. Like their body is so not used to it that any movement essentially, which goes to show whenever you're a beginner and you're working out, that's why you see fast results. Absolutely, yeah. People that are detrained or have never trained before, my professor, Dr. Eduardo de Souza, 
he always would say that in class that they, those individuals, they will sneeze and grow. Yeah. So that's his, and he would always say he's, he's Portuguese. He was a Brazilian mentor and uh, he would always uh, have this little, uh, he would have that accent that go along with it. Oh, they sneeze and grow. Yeah. Yeah. So but we will see that a lot that the more or the, the less trained you are, your adaptations or your muscle growth, your muscle strength, it just kind of flourishes. And then the more trained you get, those, those adaptations come slower and slower and you kind of have to work harder for those adaptations. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that. And then they get discouraged because, you know, we're in January right now and the gyms are packed with a lot of New Year's resolutions and everybody's wanting to get their fitness metric. Whatever that is, they want to hit it. And it's like after the first six, 12, 16 weeks, you see a ton of results, but it's then almost like you hit a wall, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's much more slow. Uh, is that the case on average across the board? Absolutely. Yeah. So when people start working out, like I said, they're going to get those, those newbie gains. They're going to, you know, they're going to go in the gym for a couple days and they're going to, man, they're going to feel stronger. They might even look better in a few weeks. And then all of a sudden they hit that plateau, that wall that they, it's just super annoying. You know, they, they train maybe even a little harder. They eat a little bit more and for a couple of weeks they get nothing nothing maybe they even put on some fat they don't they don't look <laughs> yeah. like they're gaining any muscle right. and it's so annoying but my advice for that is you kind of have to just push through that mm. you're going to have to be consistent if you want to do anything i guess let me start over with that if you want to be good at anything you have to work hard for it so that's with that's with anything and the consistency portion of this is key so if you want to grow muscle. If you want to get stronger, if you want to get better at anything, you have to be consistent and you have to have that repetition. Yeah. Like I was a runner in high school and whenever you first show up your 5k time, maybe like 30 minutes and then you train and train for a few months and then you're shaving minutes off minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. Five minutes and almost 10 minutes. Like I've seen people go from 30 minutes to 20 minute 5k time. But then once you start getting down to like 19, 18, you know, it, you see these people train and train and train just to take 10 seconds off their time. Or less than a second. Right. When you're, when you're that good. Absolutely. Like the, the metric becomes much more, uh, what granular, like down to the very bitty seconds, like you said. So, uh, that's, it's fun to talk about that because it's stuff that we've all experienced yet. We didn't know the science was there for mm -hmm. it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a cool part about your research is so many people are interested in fitness. So many people are interested in exercise and a, a lot of these things that people throw around at the gym, these sayings, for instance, if you go slower, when you do a repetition, like you're actually looking into that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that, uh, I love that you said that because that project, my master's thesis, I started that. I think I published it in 2021, but I started that project maybe in 2017. So research takes a long time. Mm -hmm. I was, I was curious about how fast I should lift for muscle growth and strength when I was an undergraduate. So maybe as a junior and undergrad, I wanted to know, okay, these people at the gym tell me I should lift really slow mm -hmm. because that will have more time under tension for my muscle to grow. And you're going to get more benefit out of that. And then we tested it. So I, I kind of drew up a design. I 
took it to my mentor, Dr. Eduardo de Souza, and he said, okay, it's, it's no good. You need to rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it. So I, then we finally got this perfect design and I, I don't want to say perfect, but to me it was, it was just brilliant. He really helped me out with, with what to do. And I guess in short, what we did was we took these well-trained guys and we had one leg serve as a fast leg and then the other leg serve as a slow leg. And all they did was do leg extensions for eight weeks. They would come in twice a week and they would do leg extensions. One leg was slow, so they would kind of go up normal. And then on the way down, they would they would kind of make sure it's lowering slower. So they would go up for one second and then three seconds down. The other leg was the fast leg and it kind of served as the control for just a normal speed. So they went one second up, one second down. And what we thought was going to happen was we'd see more muscle growth in the slow leg, right? I mean, that's what, that's what I was always told. You got to go slow for muscle growth. And what was interesting, we found the opposite, Mm. which is, yeah. Same amount of reps. Same amount of reps, same amount of weight, the same amount of rest period. We equated for all of that, which a lot of studies have not done, but because it was, we call it a within subject design, it was one individual and then their legs were varied, not there was one group that did slow, there was one group that did fast. It was, they were all the same individuals, just their legs were different. Wow. And at the end, the fast reps was actually bigger than the slow reps or they were still the same and the slow reps didn't make it any stronger? Yeah. So overall our results were that we looked at muscle strength and muscle growth. Mm -hmm. So for muscle growth, we looked at that. You can measure it a couple different ways. The way we did it was through ultrasound and we call it muscle thickness. So we just take an ultrasound probe and we put it on the front thigh and we'll measure from basically uh, right where the subcutaneous fat ends from all their muscle, kind of what it, the we call it the uh, the sheath, the sheath covering. So whatever's wrapping around that muscle, we'll measure from there all the way down to almost the bone of where that muscle ends. And basically, we can measure in centimeters how thick is your muscle, and we can do that over time. But basically, what we found overall for muscle strength, there was no difference, no difference at all. I would theorize that if we kept this study going for a longer period of time, we might see that strength would be higher in the fast condition, just because the slow condition, they were a lot more fatigued. Mm. However, for muscle growth, it right. And and for strength, I should say, if you want to get stronger, you want to limit fatigue. You do not, fatigue is not your friend. Mm. So a lot of people ask me, should you exercise to failure if you want to get stronger. And I would say definitely not because Mm. your, your sets going forward or your next exercises that you do, you're going to be really fatigued and you won't be able to keep that strength going. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard somebody mention something similar. They say like the idea of soreness. Sure. That similar to fatigue, if you work out so much to where you're so sore that it, dampens your workout the next day like it actually has long-term negative effects compared to what it could we call that overtraining, and you actually we call it overreaching to begin with and that's kind of where you're training through some sort of uh 
pain or soreness. Mm-hmm. And then if you keep consistently doing that, you're, you're basically overtraining and overtraining that muscle, your adaptations will one, your strength is going to be super inhibited. And also we're actually seeing atrophy of the muscle, which we say are the muscle decrease in size. Wow. So if you're sore, I would, it depending on, I guess it's use your best judgment, but if you are sore beyond belief, I would take a rest day, train yeah. a different part of the body, do some sort of other physical activity. So on my rest days from working out, I like to go do something active. I, I like to be active every day just because we, you know, we sit for most of the day, we sleep for most of the day. So doing something physical, you know, taking uh, your dog Sonny out for a walk, for a run, for a jog. That he loves this. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Great. <laughs> yeah. Good. 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 Yeah. He's like, keep it up. Keep okay. it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know, doing laundry, going, just walking the stairs, walking around the house, walking around the environment, walking around outside. That would be something I would do instead of training through that pain or through that muscle soreness. Yeah. Because what we're seeing, and, and that's, we can talk about this later for, because my muscle soreness, muscle damage, that's what I'm currently working on at, at University of Kansas during my PhD. But um, basically, soreness is, is something you don't really want to train through, mm. depending on how bad it is. Wow. Yeah. And before we get to that, as far as muscle fatigue goes, so you said you want to avoid muscle fatigue how do you navigate that because i know with working out part of working out is pushing yourself yep yeah definitely so what i would say is when you're doing those let's talk about strength training so if i'm going to do those those bench press that you were talking about and i want to get stronger we taught we kind of we refer to this as repetitions in reserve so if i push myself and i push myself to maybe um, if I get 10 reps and I could have done 12 or 13 more reps, we call that two to three repetitions in reserve from mm. failure. Okay. So I would not train to failure. I would train shy of failure or even really shy of failure, maybe five repetitions in reserve for strength. And there's not really, to my knowledge, there's not really a sweet spot for strength. I would just stay away from training close to that failure spot because you're, fatigue mechanism for multiple standpoints is going to be very much affected when you train to failure, which okay. your strength is not going to be, that's not great for strength. Right. It's like diminishing returns to a certain, re- certain point. Mm-hmm. So if someone's doing squats and they're like, I know I can do 15 with this weight, then what you're saying is they should get to about 12 or 10 even. And do more sets or not necessarily more sets. And I like how you said that. So if I can do 15 and I fail on that last rep at 15, then absolutely. I would train to 11 or 12. That would probably be my max for strength. And on certain exercises, you know, maybe that last set of your final exercise or one of the last sets of your kind of the end of your workout, then you can maybe go to failure. That makes sense. But right away, I I would stay away from it. If my first exercise, you know, if I'm doing bench press right away, I'm, I don't want to train to failure because it's going to affect the rest of my workout. Yeah. How do you feel about the burnouts? 
Like at the end, you see the people doing 45s and taking off 10, doing 35s. and Yeah, so we we call that a drop set. And you know, I think those have, I think it's a tool in the toolbox. I'm, I'm probably will use that phrase a lot. Yeah. And I would just say that drop sets, you know, they're great if you're in a time crunch. You know, maybe, maybe you uh, are only going to work out for, uh, like 10 minutes today, you could do one set of a drop set and still have, we've shown this in the literature. I actually just published a paper yesterday and I included a paper that showed one drop set to failure to muscular failure resulted in significant muscle growth. Wow. So what is a drop set? So it's, it's just like you said. So if I, uh, let's do a bench press for say, and let's say I load the bar up with multiple 10 pound weights. So the, the bar is stacked with all these 10 pound weights on the side and I start and I start benching it. I lift off and I start benching. Maybe I get eight reps and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted, but I could do more. Okay. Then I have a friend that's spotting me. They take off each 10 and now I have uh, on each side, maybe I had five tens on each side. So now I have four tens on each side. And then I'm going to go at it again. I'm going to do more reps and I'll do maybe do five reps this time. And I'm, I'm getting exhausted. I'm, I could do a little bit more maybe. So then my friend will take off the other tens and maybe I have two or three 10 pound weights on the side left. And then that final that final pull, I will go to failure and he'll have to grab the bar off of me so I don't die. Yeah. Yeah. It's like one giant set and you're doing all of these reps, but the reps have varying weight and they decrease each time. Exactly. Uh, With very minimal break. And when you're doing those, would you say the same thing and the idea of even if I could do 12 at the very first set, maybe just do 10, that way I can have a longer workout it depends on your entire workout. If you're going to do a lot more exercises after that, okay. then I would definitely stay away. But if it's I at would, a bookend, then it's just kind of like... End, you, you could probably do that. But go again, to broke. Yeah, right, exactly. Go to broke, yep. But I will say that it depends on your goal. So if you want to get stronger, I don't think drop sets are very effective for mm. doing that. You can get stronger, but it's just not specific. If in short, and it's pretty simple, if you want to get stronger, you have to lift heavier weight. Okay. However, if you want to get bigger muscles, you don't have to lift heavy weight. You can lift a multitude. So this is, that was basically a common misconception. Right. Uh, for I've a heard couple of years ago. Absolutely. If you lift light, you get cut. And if you lift heavy, you get big. Exactly. It doesn't work like that. So m- mainly from body composition, that is a lot to do with diet, but for muscle growth, you can build the same amount of muscle with four reps all the way out to 30 reps I've seen. Wow. So you pick whatever rep range you want to do that, that six to 12 rep range of that's the key for muscle growth that has been very much debunked. And I'm going to use that because that, that was just in a paper, basically the the muscle myths of or debunking the muscle myths. Yeah. I like to tell people, they always ask me when I work out with them, they're like, okay, what rep range are we going to do? Are we going to stick to like the eight to 10? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we can pick whatever you want. As long as for, for muscle growth, it's really about the intensity that you train at or the effort. So the physical effort that you put into basically that repetition and reserve metric that we utilized. Yeah. I want you to train 
around two to three reps in reserve. That's, that's basically, I don't want to say it's the key for muscle growth, but that's where you'll find the most consistency with growing muscle is when you're training closer to failure. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I've, I've heard that a lot is all right, do the, do the little weights that way you can get cut up. And one of the things that I hear are guys who will say in the winter time, it's bulking and they'll lift really heavy weights, but then in the summer they want to get cut up. So they lift lighter weights. Uh, so it's that same misconception of depending on the size of the weights, it's going to completely change the way it impacts your body. Right. I would not agree with that statement that if you want to lift lightweights, it's going to translate to more, you know, people use the word toned. I call it body recomposition. So losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time. And it's not really going to translate like that. Your body's very smart to where if I lift heavyweight, if I lift lightweight, if I want to grow muscle, it just matters how close you're training to failure. Okay. So you talked on this, you touched on this, but I'm still going to ask the question because I think a lot of people are curious. Like whenever you mention there's no difference between 30 and like six reps. So some people probably hear that and they're thinking, so are you saying these 24 reps that I did to get to 30 didn't even matter? I would say it's under preference. So if you like training with higher reps, I would do that. And you know, We've, we've seen studies that show if you're training with higher rep ranges, people think that you're going to burn more calories doing that. When you resistance train or when you strength train for an hour or two hours, you're not burning that many calories. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm burning thousands and thousands of calories. You're not. You're actually, on average, you're probably, within an hour session, you're probably burning 400 to 500 calories, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. That, right, because it's hard work. Many. Exactly. I'm sweating. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gassed at, at the end of the workout, and I'm like, wow, 500 calories, I can get that in a Twix bar. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so to, to answer your question directly, if choosing between six reps and 20 reps, it's really just a preference. And some people, you know, they, they might want to lift the heavy weight and get it over with and, and do that, uh, four to six reps and, and they're good. That's fine. But if you want to lift lighter weights and still approach closer to failure, you can do that with lifting to 20 to 25 reps. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into all of this? Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> great. Yeah. So Chris probably knows me as a, I'm a third year PhD student at the university of Kansas and I've been studying exercise and muscle specifically for probably over close to 10 years now, but I was not always like this. And I told Chris before the, before this podcast that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm, I, I'm pretty average, but I have a hard work ethic and a strong passion for what I do. And that was not in existence when I was in high school. So in high school, <laughs> you know, I, I was kind of the class clown. I didn't really care about school at all. I had my first, my first report card was all D's and F's, which oh, is just no. crazy to think about. My, my family is still like, Jeremy, we have no idea how you're doing a PhD right now because your high school, uh, your, your, I guess your, your lifeline through high school was not... Right. 
it was very different. Different trajectory. Different. Exactly. Exactly. I probably should have been in jail or yeah. Anyways, but yeah. So, you know, through high school, I was always involved with sports and just interested in athletic performance. And, you know, I always liked to lift weights and I was just very active in high school. It wasn't until my junior year of high school that I went to this bodybuilding centered gym and I met my bodybuilding coach, Sam, and we, you know, we hit it off right away. And he said, Hey, I I would love to coach you for a show coming up. And I saw this, this flyer, uh, for the state fair, Wisconsin bodybuilding championships. And I just, I was, I I need to do this. It was just, you know, I think it was just a sign from God. It was, I I have to do this. Sam is going to coach me. And that's what happened. So I started training. I think I did, we call it a prep. I think I did like a 14 week prep for this competition. So I lost maybe 20 to 25 pounds and, and tried to keep as much muscle as possible and yeah, yeah, I competed. I was so nervous. I, I got on, I got the, or I guess the, the day before the show, I had my coach, Sam, uh, tan me up. It's kind of like this paint mm-hmm. that you kind of like paint on someone. And, uh, why do they do that? Great question. So when you're under, when you're on the stage and you're under very bright lights, I mean, I guess no one can see me right now, but I'm very pale. And for most individuals, if the light would hit them, you would barely see any definition. You would see basically nothing. You would see my hair and and that's pretty much it. So you get super tanned up because when the light hits you, it's going to show all the definition, all the, all that hard work, all Mm. the lines, all the cuts, all the definition that you've worked so hard for in that, that prep of 14 to 20 weeks. Okay. Yeah. So Anyways, I, I do this bodybuilding competition and I have a blast. I have so much fun and I am in prep for another one for my senior year and I compete for body for bodybuilding for another five years down the line. And I think after my, my second show is when I watched a documentary on bodybuilding, basically it was called generation iron. And if you're interested at all about bodybuilding, the sport of bodybuilding, or just want some motivation to go to the gym, I highly recommend watching this. And there's one part in there that showed this professional bodybuilder who is all about the science. And he goes to this school, the University of Tampa, and he goes and gets his blood work done. He does his body comp. There's a bunch of different tests that he'll do, muscle activation, all this cool stuff that I'm like, wow, this is this is a thing? Like, I can go to school for this? Wow. Like, very cool. At the time, I think I wanted to be a physical therapist. And at the time, I think, actually, yeah, I was a first-year student in my undergrad back at Carroll, and I was studying exercise science, but I wanted to go to physical therapy school because I wanted to make a lot of money. Sure. And I liked people. So, mm-hmm. and then is, uh, when I, I signed up to be a nursing home, uh, like kind of a PT aid or a physical therapist assistant. And I hated every second of it. And my, 
my my colleagues or my my friends in undergrad they're like Jeremy yeah I don't think physical therapy is for you it just oh, it doesn't it's not working so and they were right they were definitely right so actually what happened was after I saw that that movie I was really interested but I didn't really know what to do with it I didn't know oh like do I do I have to go to this school do I do I have to you know what do I do what's my next step and actually what happened was I was invited to be a research subject at the grad school where, where I went to undergrad and I got to be a research subject for the study and it was very, very cool. So I walked in and they hooked me up to all these electrodes. They put a breathing mask on me so I could breathe and they could measure basically my breathing rates and how much oxygen I was taking in, how much carbon dioxide I was expelling. And then they had me do this test called a Wingate test. And my students, if you're listening, you know what that is. It's basically I get on a bike and I pedal for 30 seconds as hard as I can against a weighted resistance, which it basically feels like I'm just pushing against the wall for 30 seconds as hard as I can. It's not fun, but I really enjoyed it my first time. And I just thought to myself, this is so cool. This is what an exercise scientist does. And, you know, I, after that, during my undergrad, I just, that's kind of, that was the switch. I guess bodybuilding was the switch that, you know, got me passionate and got me uh, excited to do more with my life than just, you know, play around in high school. I, I got really serious during those, uh, I think that last year of high school when I competed and I kind of went all for it. So my grades from D's to F's, I went straight A's straight A's. I got into my undergrad. And then from there, I think I, I, you know, I don't, I I probably ended with close to a 4.0, but that doesn't really matter. I'm just saying that there was a switch. There was a switch, a clear switch. And it was kind of a new, new me. And, um, I get into undergrad. I know physical therapy is not for me. I want to get into this, this research area. So what I do is I reach out to one of the guys at the university of Tampa. Networking is key. That is so huge. It's the people that, you know, Uh I would not be where I'm at today if I didn't reach out to a lot of these individuals. Is this the same guy on generation iron that you saw? It was actually one of the scientists that worked with him. Cool. Exactly. Yep. So to this day, I've actually never met that professional bodybuilder, but the, the individuals or the scientists that worked with him, I've met all those, all those individuals, all those people. They're, they're close friends of mine now. Wow. I reach out to, his name is Chris Barricat, and he is a master's student at the University of Tampa. And I just say, hey, Chris, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Jeremy. I'm a competitive bodybuilder just like you. And I know you're, at this point, he is a coach. He is a is a uh, bodybuilder and he is a master student or a research assistant at, at Tampa. And I just, Hey, like, I'm really interested in what goes on there. I would really love to, you know, meet you. And that summer, my professor in undergrad back in Wisconsin, he's like, Hey, Jeremy, would you like to come with me to this conference? You can stay in my hotel room, which is kind of weird, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I've, I'm so appreciative of him. I, yeah. I texted him last night after our paper was published and, and uh, just said, thank you for everything because you know, without you, I wouldn't have, have been here. Right. But uh, so he said, Hey Jeremy, I want you to come to this conference with me. 
It's a great networking and just place where you can meet all these people. And it just so happens that Chris from Tampa was also going to be there along with other researchers from university of Tampa. So yeah, you know, it was just great. It was, it was the coolest thing ever. You know, I, I, we, I think the first conference was in new Orleans. So we went to new Orleans and I met Chris, I met all those guys and it was just the coolest thing from there. I met my mentor. I met Dr. DeSouza and I said, Hey, please wait for me. I think I got one more year of undergrad. I want to go to Tampa for my master's. I want, I want to do this thing like that. I don't think there's any other place that I want to go. So my undergrad is coming to an end. I know I have one semester left and I have to do an internship and I didn't want to do it where a lot of the other people do it. A lot of people, a lot of my like, colleagues or my, my peers in, in undergrad, they just kind of went to some random local place and just worked as like a personal trainer or something like that. And one, I know I'm not a good personal trainer. I don't have the patience for it. And I'm just not, I'm just not good at that, I think. And I knew of a independent lab in Tampa that worked with a lot of like sports performance and they worked with pro athletes. And I was just talking to you before this Mm -hmm. and this place is pretty cool. So it's the applied science performance Institute. It is not affiliated with the university of Tampa at all, but I knew that I wanted to go to school there. So why not kind of, I could work there and, and collaborate or just kind of network a little bit at the school while I'm down in Tampa. So that's exactly what happened. I reached out to, my supervisor, Matt Sharp at the Applied Science Performance Institute. And he's, you know, he's a great guy, great. One of my, one of the best mentors I've ever had. And I flew down there and I basically was, I was a sports scientist for them for about six months, five months. And I got to work with all these different individuals. So I got to work with a lot of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and then just it was kind of a, a well-known, it was, it was a world-renowned lab. So a lot of people would come in, like Tony Robbins would come in, Randy Moss, uh, Busta Rhymes, which, weird, why is Busta Rhymes coming here? But, was he getting worked out? <laughs> he was. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and what were you yeah. doing with them? Yeah, so we would test a lot of their metrics for body composition, blood. Uh, we would test their jump height. We would test their biomechanics. So a lot of these players would come in their off season and just see, you know, if they're improving. So they come for eight weeks, 10 weeks, and we train them, we give them nutrition advice, we give them all this stuff, and then we'll test them from as soon as they get here to eight weeks later, 10 weeks later, and see if they're improving. So after that, I made the decision to, they actually offered me a job, but I said, you know what? I, I want to do my master's. I want to, I want to continue this education. I love learning. I love what I'm doing here, but you know, I, I know Tampa or university of Tampa is my next step. So I, I actually head back home. I collect all my things and I reached out to the graduate assistant, I guess the, the student in charge of the lab at UT. And he says, Hey, there's an opening that I want you to apply for. And during my master's, there's only one lab position. There's basically just one student that's in charge of the lab and 50 students get 
admitted to this program every year. It's kind of a professional master's degree, not just a where there's you know one or two seats like it is now for me. So I reach out to Dr. DeSouza. I reach out to the current graduate assistant and I apply for it. I meet with them. I do an interview and I actually got it, which I was so surprised. And I, I had a blast doing it. It was so fun, but I was selected to be the graduate assistant. I ran the lab and helped coordinate all the teaching and all the research. It was very stressful and yeah. it was very um, fun at the same time. How did you get notified you got it? Great question. I, I remember that day I got a phone call from Dr. DeSalza as I was driving in Wisconsin. And <laughs> he says, Hey, Jeremy, I just want to let you know that you were selected to be the graduate assistant. And I remember I almost drove off the road. I had to stop drive. I've never stopped driving before, like on the side of the road for anything. That was the only time I've ever done it was I, I got selected to be the graduate assistant. I got accepted into the university of Tampa. I got the graduate assistantship, which basically they paid for my school and they gave me a stipend to yeah. work, which you were being paid to go to school. I was being paid. Yeah. How yeah. cool is yeah, that? Very, very fun. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It was, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I, but again, it's, it's just a culmination of just hard work and just, you know, being genuine person to these individuals. Yeah. Like you said, there's 50 people there. Only one person gets to be only one, the grad assistant. And did you feel like you were going to get it or was there already part of you thinking, Oh, I'm not going to get it. I definitely did not think I was going to get it because I wasn't an inside candidate. Usually mm. the graduate assistant is someone that does the undergrad at university of Tampa. And then they go right from undergrad to their masters. They, I think I was one of the first ones that, that, that happened. Wow. What would you have done? Had you not gotten it? I would have still, gone, mm -hmm. but I would have probably had to take out a loan or just work, you know? Yeah. But you were going to go regardless. I was going to go. I, that was my dream school. Okay. And it still is. It, it's university of Tampa is just beautiful. It's right on the water. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very cool place. That's awesome. But yeah. you're in Kansas now. I'm in Kansas now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to, so it's, that's actually a funny story of how that happened. But finishing up with Tampa, I got involved with, so I was working in this lab under Dr. DeSalza, and he studies basically the, the macroscopic or the, the big adaptations that happen with muscle growth. So how does this exercise, how does this nutritional intervention, and when I say intervention, I'm talking multiple weeks. So my study was eight weeks. We've done you know, six to eight week studies before where it's kind of a chronic period of time and looking at muscle growth over time. And so we, I'm, I'm in this lab. And then I also know that I wanted to get involved with my PhD. I, I really wanted to learn more about the mechanism of how is that happening? How is muscle growing? What is actually, what genes are expressing? What proteins are being um, modified, what proteins are coming together to build more muscle? How is the muscle actually growing? All these thoughts in my head, all these questions in my head, I'm like, okay, I think I need a PhD for this. I need more training. I need where I was in Tampa. They didn't have a PhD program and they didn't have the equipment to do that. However, 
uh, right away when I got to the University of Tampa, I got in contact with a professor from the biology department and we worked together for actually two years on a a stem cell project. So I was actually a research assistant in his stem cell lab and we worked with all these different types of stem cells and my project was differentiating umbilical cord stem cells to skeletal muscle tissue, Hmm. which is a very hard thing to do. It took very long and we still didn't actually perfect the technique, but that is kind of where my molecular background came into play and helped me acquire my PhD. So as soon as I'm done with the university of Tampa, I get done, I graduate, I started teaching for them. I was a adjunct professor and I was still working in the stem cell lab. I got the opportunity to go to a conference in the Czech Republic of all places, which it was, it was great. It was very cool. But anyways, I go there, I walk in the door of the building and I'm the only American there. My, my lab mates were, it was funny. I was the only, only guy from America. My lab mates are from England and uh, Northern Ireland and India. And I walk in and I see this guy that has a blue polo on and there's a bird on it. And I'm like, okay, I swear that is from the U S I, you know, it looks really familiar. That's a, I think that's a sports team. And so I go up to him, we start talking and it's one of the PhD students at the university of Kansas. And he's telling me, Hey Jeremy, like there is this professor there that does exactly what you're interested in. You know, it's skeletal muscle physiology. What makes muscles grow that like that professor studies that. And I was very surprised because at the time I applied to a couple different places and I unfortunately did not get in. And it just, it wasn't because I really, well, I guess it doesn't really matter, but when you're applying for a PhD, it is not like the master's program to where they let 50 people in. You basically have to apply at the right place, right time, because the place I wanted to go was Auburn and they, that professor had a line for like three years in advance. Wow. And yeah. So, because you can only come in when there's a vacancy. I can only come in when there is maybe one spot open for a place. Yeah. So it didn't work out and that's fine. So I reached out to this professor in Kansas. It's, it's funny. He's actually from Wisconsin, just like me. So we kind of connected right away. I toured the place and I applied. He let me in and here I am. As soon as I got to Kansas, I knew I wanted to study muscle on the molecular level. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need a lab that does muscle biopsies. And I think the first time I met you, Chris, is I showed you my biopsy video of, okay, here's my professor. He's going to inject this lidocaine into your leg and we're going to make a, a small incision all the way into the muscle. And he's just going to punch me with this huge, big metal needle and we're going to take some muscle out of you and I'm going to study it. So not many labs in the U S do this. And that's why I wanted to, you know, choose Auburn or choose, um, Penn state. Cause they, there's only a few labs in the country that do this. It's more prevalent in Europe. Dr. Gallagher, the Dr. Philip Gallagher is the 
professor that I'm working under, and he is, I will say, an expert at doing this procedure. So his lab is dedicated to studying the immune system and skeletal muscle tissue in response, or I guess the, the adaptations that come from that on the microscopic level to exercise or nutrition. Generally, exercise has kind of been his focus. He's also done a lot of uh, NASA spaceflight stuff in his PhD and postdoc work, which is very, very interesting. He was kind of one of the first people to do that. To make sure the astronauts are in good shape. Well, just to think that when you go up in space, you're not loading your body anymore. Your muscle is really going to atrophy. So they actually do a really good job of that now. They have squat machines and different technology that helps them work out in space. Wow. Which is so cool. Yeah, if if, if you want to Google it or YouTube it sometime, there's some really crazy stuff that they've been doing. But in general, when you have an astronaut go up in space, their strength and their muscle quality, their muscle size is it shrinks. Wow. Because they don't have that gravity that's constantly pushing against us. Exactly. I mean, just think about if you sat in bed for 84 days, what do you think is going to happen? But anyway, so I get to Kansas. I start working in his lab immediately. It is me and another PhD student. He usually has two. So one that's studying the immune system and then one that's studying skeletal muscle. That's me. And he has this collaboration or this network with the microscopy lab or the microscope lab at KU, which is you know right across the streets. And he introduces me to them and... He wants me to train under them. And this lab has just been, this has been my favorite part of KU by far. I I don't know if they're going to listen to this, but these researchers in this microscopy lab, it's the Microscopy and Analytical Imaging Core Research Group led by Dr. Rosa Molinar or Eduardo Rosa Molinar. And these colleagues of mine or these, these, I guess the supervisors, you know, there's a big smile on my face. If you can't hear it in my voice right now, they've, they've made my time at the university just so worthwhile. I've learned so much stuff from them and I, I just enjoy being around them, being outside the lab with them. They are, they're my family. So they have been training me for the last two years, two and a half years in all things microscopy or microscope related. So from start to finish, what I've been doing at Kansas is we take a biopsy out of someone's leg. I take that chunk of muscle and I go run it over to the microscopy lab and I'm going to cut it kind of like a meat slicer. So we section it. I section it in these cross sections and I put each section on this glass slide and then I can label it or stain it with these antibodies that are specific to muscle stem cells. So muscle stem cells are kind of my, that's my niche at, at KU. I put these antibodies that are on it that are specific for muscle stem cells, and then I put it under a microscope, and I image it, and I can see it blown up on the big screen, which wow. I'm a very visual person. I'm not a numbers math. I'm, I'm, 
like I said, I, I am not that smart. My, my math skills are probably high school at, at best. I, my professor will, will vouch for that. I am a very visual learner and microscopy is dealing with images. It's, it's all, how is this cell affected? How is this? I can visualize it. It's not a number on the computer, which yeah. is really cool to me. So what is a stem cell? Yeah, definitely. So what is just a general form of a stem cell? A stem cell is this undifferentiated cell. It's the cell that basically doesn't know what it wants to be. It, it just, it's just kind of there, but it has the, the ability to differentiate into different tissues. So it can differentiate into muscle. It can differentiate into bone or fat or a skin cell but it can also self-renew. So it can, the stem cell can activate and it can turn into muscle. It can turn into bone or fat. However, it can activate and then also, or it can, instead of differentiating, it can self-renew back to its undifferentiated state. Wow. So So it's like a wild card. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a wild cell, wild card cell. And it can do anything. And we all have stem cells in us and those stem cells, depending on what our, the demands of our body are, then those stem cells are assigned to wherever they go. Definitely. Yeah. So it's, I'm going to, I'm going to specialize a little bit more. So muscles or just a, a stem cell in general is a very broad thing. We have, we have stem cells all over our body. So I can get them from uh, bone marrow, blood. I can get them from, you know, we can actually, we can take a already differentiated tissue. So muscle bone or skin, and we can actually convert it back to its stem cell formation, which is called an induced pluripotent stem cell, which is really cool. So I used to work with those at uh, the university of Tampa in that stem cell lab. But my specific project is looking at muscle specific stem cells. So just the stem cells that are involved in your muscle and what those do I always like telling you, yeah, I tell my sister this cause she's like, what the heck do you even do? <laughs> so what are muscle stem cells? Well, when you exercise or when you, you don't even have to exercise when you just do any physical activity, any, you know, yard work, or you go for a hike and you know, you're sore the next day. And then the next day you're sore, the next day you're a little less sore. And then maybe that fourth or fifth day, you're not sore at all. You're like, well, you probably don't think about that, but I'm like, how does that happen? Mm -hmm. Those are your muscle stem cells that are activating due to the muscle damage that you have that you've acquired through the exercise or that hike or, you know, whatever, taking Sunny for a run Mm -hmm. and you ran maybe a little too fast or something. So you had a little bit of muscle damage. Those muscle stem cells are going to activate and they're going to kind of latch on to that damaged part of the muscle tissue and it will regenerate that tissue. Mm. So do different people have different amounts of stem cells? Because I've heard that some people recover quicker than others. Yeah, that's, that is a great question. And I honestly don't even have a, it, it's, it's still unclear why that happens, but yes. So actually between men and women, 
uh, men typically have more muscle stem cells and we call them satellite cells, but I'll just for, in terms of this, we'll just call them muscle stem cells, but muscle stem cells are generally more prominent in men. And my reasoning for that is because men have larger fibers. They have, they have larger muscle in total. Yeah. So you're probably going to find more muscle stem cells with right. larger muscles, right? Yep. So it's not, it's actually, there's a couple different studies looking at uh, muscle stem cell populations. It's not crazy different between men and women, but there is a difference. Wow. Generally. Yeah. Like I think about, I've heard this before, but LeBron James, people say one of the reasons why he's so good, sure, there's many reasons, but one of them is he recovers quicker than the average person and he's able to get back to the next workout and in total be able to do more workouts and not be as limited by muscle fatigue. Now, I don't know. I've never worked with them directly, but that's something I've heard of. So it makes me curious as to how people recover quicker than the other people. Yeah, that is such a good question. And I really don't have a solid answer for you. In research, we have this thing called high responders and low responders to exercise that, you know, some, some people we give them, and this happened, this happens with my research studies, all these people, all these different people will do the same protocol, the exact same thing. Half of them grow an insane amount of muscle growth. Mm -hmm. Half of them don't change at all. Some of them lose muscle mass or there is just so much variability. And I think a lot of this has to do, and I'll answer your question with the recovery thing. Why do individuals recover faster than others? We don't really know. You know, there might be a genetic component of, you know, these muscle specific genes are activating and creating more proteins that are allowing for uh, muscle regeneration to happen quicker. There might be you know, more stems, more muscle stem cells that are activating and are regenerating that tissue quicker. I wouldn't say because I've seen LeBron's trainer and some of the stuff that he does is just downright crazy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think, uh, Stuart Phillips, which is a professor in Canada, who's a profound muscle research. He always, he always said, if you feed LeBron or Tom Brady twigs or, or bricks to eat, mm -hmm. they're still going to perform at, at just an mm. insane level. It's just something, some, it's, it's just, uh, it's just a LeBron thing. Yeah. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't know what makes them so good. Right. And there's, I think a lot of people love looking into that because we love the outliers and a lot of research or a lot of people particular, for instance, with podcasts, people build podcasts and bring the most successful people on, right? And they want to know why Elon Musk is like this or Mark Zuckerberg is like this. And oftentimes it's hard to explain. Right. It's just, they're doing quite well. Here's a question that I'm curious about, and this may be completely uh, ludicrous, but it's something I've heard in the gym. And I feel like as you were talking about busting the gym myths, this is one of them. So I've heard the legs are so big that if I work them out, they produce more testosterone, like these big muscles, like the legs or the back. And I've heard people tell me, hey, say you're working out your biceps. If you go work out your legs, like do a set of squats and then go to bicep curls, 
then you're more likely to have more muscle growth because by working out your legs, you emitted this testosterone that is much more than the amount that you'd get from just doing the biceps alone. Chris, I love it. That That is not a ludicrous question. It's it's a question that has been asked so much and, and you could probably, there's a smile on my face right now because <laughs> yeah. I get that. I got that question last week, you know, from one of my friends back home in Wisconsin. It's if I train my lower body, isn't there going to be more of a hormonal response that's right. going to affect uh, muscle growth in my upper body, my arms. And what we're seeing time and time again, and actually Stuart Phillips, the one that I mentioned from Canada, he has, he has done so many studies on this looking at when I exercise and I have a growth hormone, a testosterone, a cortisol, a IGF, uh, all, all these hormones. When I have a hormonal response after I work out, what does that mean for muscle growth? And what we're seeing is time and time again, it really doesn't mean anything. There's mm. not really a correlation at all. So I guess what I'm saying in terms of I exercise and then we, we take your blood or we take your muscle sample and we look at, okay, how much testosterone went up? How much, how much growth hormone went up? How much cortisol? How much IGF? How much of this insulin went up? We're seeing an increase. We're seeing no change. We're seeing a decrease all over the map. Mm. So long story short, to put it in perspective, acute hormonal responses to exercise don't really mean much mm. for muscle growth or chronic adaptations. So that, that myth, hopefully I just busted that one that if I train my legs, I'm going to have a greater testosterone response. It's going to help with muscle growth in my arms. There might be something there with something we call a, it's, it's kind of a cross education. So basically if I train just one arm, uh, is that going to kind of help with my other arm? We're seeing a little bit of that from a neural standpoint, but from like a muscle growth standpoint, I don't think we have anything there. Hmm. I would say if you want to get big arms, you have to train arms. I wouldn't train legs and then do a little bit of arms. If you want to get big arms, you have to train arms. It's yeah. kind of that principle of specificity. If I want to get good at walking sunny, I have to walk sunny. I can't just sit there with sunny. If I want to get good at water skiing, if I want to get good at bench press, or I guess for this, I should probably say, if I want to get good at squatting, I can't just do leg press. I can't do leg extensions and leg press and leg curls and all that. It might help with squatting, but if I really want to get good at squatting, I have to squat. Okay, yeah. I have another question that I want to ask you about your paper, but talking about specificity, I have had different seasons of my life to where I'm more specific about working out than I am other seasons, for instance. I've had some seasons in my life where I do push-pull days. And whenever I push, I can do a whole bunch of different exercises, but as long as they're pushing exercises like the press, leg press, bench press, push-ups, you know? But then I've had other seasons in my life where I dedicate a day to a muscle, like my arms, my biceps today, my triceps tomorrow, my chest on Thursday, my legs, da-da-da-da. So uh, you mentioned specificity, like how specific 
is optimal. And optimal is a funny word, right? But how specific mm-hmm. is optimal? Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I My question for you is what is your goal? My goal is to get really strong and to look like Chris Evans. Yeah, thousand percent. I love it. Yeah. So what I would say for the specificity portion of if you want to train just one body part uh, a day for, for throughout the week, the research is kind of showing you want to train each body part twice a week. So whatever allows you to do that, and this is for someone that's very well trained, like you, you work out all the time, I can tell. So I would say for you, you want to train twice a week, Makes each sense. body part twice a week. You could do a entire full body workout twice a week, or you could do an upper body day twice a week or a lower body day twice a week, or you could split it up to that push pull movement or adding in, you know, biceps at the beginning of your workout or end of your workout, doing something more of like a smaller muscle group, doing calves at the end of your leg day, something like that. So there's all different ways that you can do it. The, the, the specificity component comes in to where if you want to get stronger with a certain exercise, if you want to get stronger with squatting, stronger with leg press, stronger with bicep curls, you have to do those exercises. Mm. That is only for strength for muscle. Well, I guess I'll say if you want to get stronger in those specific exercises, you have to do them. Like there's, there's no way around it. If you want to get good at something, you have to do that. But for muscle growth, it's actually pretty interesting that you don't have to do specific, uh, specific exercises. So me, for instance, it's kind of funny. I don't deadlift. I don't barbell back squat. I don't do any bench press. Hmm. I don't like doing it. And you know, it's, it's worked for me. I, during, I think I did a little bit of that during my competition days, but I'm actually bigger than I am than I I was now. And it's not, I'll tell you that it's not from squatting. I find ways around it. So I really like doing machines. I like leg press. I like using dumbbells for bench. I like uh, doing lat pull downs and all the, all this other stuff. That's just, it's more enjoyable for me. It's less fatiguing for me. And I just, you know, when I get to the gym, I don't look at myself and go, or I, I don't think to myself, Oh, I have to, I have to barbell back squat or I have to, yeah. ugh, I have to deadlift today. I don't want to do that. Right. I never do that. I'm actually excited to go to the gym. I pick the exercises I enjoy doing. And you mentioned that in coaching cues. Yeah, whenever you were yes. talking, like do the things that will get you to go to the gym. Exactly. Yeah. That, that you said it best. You absolutely said it best that anyone that's listening to this, if you don't like working out, I encourage you to try it again, find exercises, maybe go uh, grab a personal trainer and find exercises you enjoy doing. So I'm, if you don't like running, if you don't like doing the elliptical, you don't like doing the Stairmaster, find forms of cardio or, you know, strength training. If you don't like squatting, if you don't like benching, like I do, I find ways around it and I find exercises I really, really enjoy doing. And with those exercises, I push them. I go, I go hard with those exercises that I enjoy. Yeah. And that's really, to me, that's the key for that's the key for muscle growth. Right. Yeah. Finding like, those exercises you enjoy to be consistent with it. 
I see the people who hate running outside or they hate the treadmill, but they love basketball. It's like, okay, cool. You know, do basketball. Yeah. Do it as much as you can. Yeah. Cross some people up, break some ankles. Absolutely. Um, so you just dropped a paper and I yes. not physically dropped a paper on the floor, but you published an article. And is this the equivalent of a rapper publishing an album? Wow. That is, uh, I think I'm going to steal that one from you, Chris. That is, <laughs> that is perfectly said. So yesterday I just published my first, first author paper at the university of Kansas and in research, it takes so, so long. I think I mentioned this before with my repetition tempo paper. It took four years to get that thing done. This one went a little bit faster. I think it took about a year and a half, two years. But yes, it it doesn't happen very often that we publish a paper because it takes a lot of money to, or it, it takes a lot of time to get the money to do the, the paper to do the project, I guess it takes a lot of time to recruit the participants to, to make the design, to have those subjects do the protocol. And then after that, I need to analyze the data, which takes forever, you know, writing that up afterwards. Finally, I finally get the results. I'm writing it up. I send it to my professor. He says it's, he says it's crap. It's no good. So I have to rewrite it and I rewrite it again. And I probably rewrite it a third time. And finally, it's good enough for him. And then we send it to a journal and right away, they're going to say, nope, it's no good. So then I send it to another one. Nope, no good. So then you have to send it to, <laughs> it's just a lot of fit. It, <laughs> yeah. it takes so long. So anyways, we finally found our fit. Every, every paper has its fit. And we found um, actually a pretty good journal in our field, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. So I sent it in. And we had three reviewers and it was actually, they, they all said, great paper, make these comments, make these edits and we're going to accept it, which I was ecstatic. I, yeah, this doesn't happen very often. So a rapper dropping his mixtape, this is exactly what happened yesterday. So I'm pretty much on cloud nine right now. Dang. Okay. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions about this. Um, first being, if someone's listening to this and they're like, Ooh, I want to read your paper. Now, is it one of those things where you have to have, I know with a lot of academic work, you have to have access to the journal and in order to access any of the academic articles, you have to pay, like, is that the case? Um, or is this something that actually they can look at it on your Instagram? I saw that you put up a little abstract on your Instagram. Absolutely. So you can, you can follow me on Instagram. It, uh, I'm not super active compared to some of my colleagues who I would absolutely follow Christopher Barricat, the one I initially made contact with in Tampa. So he, he is, he's the best. I, I, I know I'm biased, but you know, he is a bodybuilding coach. He's a scientist. He's a professor. He's just everything. He's a pro bodybuilder. Now he won his pro card a couple uh, months ago. So I would follow him. He just puts out great content. There's a couple other people too, uh, Brad Schoenfeld. Maybe we can put this in the comments. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, I want to make research as available to anyone as possible. And for my undergrads that are in my class that I teach, I actually show them this website called SciHub. So it's S C I hyphen H U B dot S E. 
And that is this, it's a little scary, but it's, it's, it's this website that allows you free papers. Cool. And basically what you do is you find this paper that you like, you take the, the website address or the title of the paper, and then it's just basically like a Google. So you go to Sci-Hub, you type in that uh, website name or whatever, boom, or the, the paper name, done. And wow. you get it. How yep. cool is that? Yeah, so Sci-Hub. That is a, I, I don't know if it's illegal. <laughs> I think it's frowned upon. Sure. I mean, obviously, like journals aren't going to like that if you're kind of stealing their papers. But, you know, I want education. I want knowledge to be available to everyone. Right. The fact that you have to pay so much money to get access to a journal article, it's quite odd, particularly the amount of time researchers like yourself have spent invested in that paper and then it gets put behind a paywall. You wouldn't believe how much we have to pay the journal to make it open access, to make it free. Wow. So we did that once and the fee was $4,000, mm. which is insane. Got to get in the business. I don't, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know what to do at that point. I think I have to rob a bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you're on a pretty good trajectory, so I don't want you to get thrown off yeah, true. by robbing a bank. <laughs> but we've talked about a lot of things and you, I imagine you have mentioned this, be it, tangentially or maybe you've really nailed it on the head but this paper you just published what does it contribute to the scholarship of muscle research yeah so this paper looked at different volume and when i talk about volume i'm talking about the number of sets times the number of reps that are performed volume and how it affects muscle signaling kind of on a, on, a, on a microscopic level, on kind of a molecular level. And in the literature right now, there is a lot of debate, a lot of arguments about how much volume should I perform in the gym to increase muscle size, to optimize muscle size? Because I could probably build muscle with a lot of different volumes, but what's the best volume? So what we looked at was having one group do one set of leg press to failure, versus a different group that did three sets, two sets that weren't that were close to failure, and then the third set or the final set to failure. What we found was that one set of leg press versus three sets of leg press were basically there was no difference in this muscle signaling response, which is we call it the it's the AKT protein kinase B signaling pathway. And what that just means is that when I exercise, when I strength train, usually this pathway is turned on and it's going to over time lead to more muscle growth. Mm. So it's kind of a mechanistic point of view that, okay, I exercise, I strength train, I do this exercise. How is it going to affect this signaling cascade? So I, we looked at three different proteins. We looked at, I don't even need to give you the names because it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo, but we looked at three different proteins that are down this pathway. And we found no differences from one set of leg press to three sets of leg press. So what I take away from that is something is absolutely better than nothing. And what we're seeing is that one set is almost, it, it might be, as important as doing three sets, or it could be comparable to doing three sets. So I think you can get 
for someone that doesn't like working out, I think you can get a lot of muscle growth and a lot of muscular adaptations from just doing one set to failure and just going in, hitting it, hitting one muscle group. Um, hopefully you can do more than one muscle group, but one set of that muscle group to failure and you'll still see some benefit from that. Wow. It actually might be as comparable as doing multiple sets, which is really cool for someone that doesn't like exercise. That would be fantastic. That is awesome. So yeah. research shows, and we can say that now because this is a published paper, mm-hmm. research shows that one set can give a lot of benefits and that doing more sets, there's a chance that it could give you a little bit more. I would say the more trained you get, you're going to have to do more sets than one. Okay. I would say to optimize muscle growth for you and me, we have to do more than one set. However, for someone that doesn't, maybe your mom, she doesn't like strength training. She could go to the gym and do one set for legs, for arms, for chest, and have major benefit from that. Nice. I need to get her on a program, one set program. One set. One set to failure. Wow. And you leave the gym. And you mentioned to failure because we're not doing multiple sets. So we don't need to worry about the fatigue that going to failure would impact our future sets for. You want that stress at that point. If you're only doing one set, I would do it to failure. Wow. So that right there is super impactful because it can, that one piece of knowledge that, hey, one set matters so much can get people to go into the gym much more than this really intimidating and daunting, hey, do three sets of this, three sets of that, do five mm-hmm. sets, do a drop set, do a super set, right? It's just do one set. That's exciting that you just published an article that's saying that because it's so applicable to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that very much. It, it's, I, I am on cloud nine. I really am. It's so exciting to see your work, your, like I, you created this and now it's out to the world. The whole world can see what you did. And, you know, I feel like I'm an artist or a a sculptor and just, here's my work. Here's my, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. But it's, it's even more cool to me to when I can apply it to everyday people in the gym, it just people in life. And the big problem that I'm, facing right now with a lot of the grants that I write, the what problem am I, am I trying to solve as a researcher? What am I trying to basically accomplish after grad school, after like, what, what am I trying to do? I basically want to, one, I want to educate people on how they can just live a healthier life and then they can live longer because what we're seeing is that when you get older, your muscle fibers are going to atrophy and that's going to lead to frailty. That frailty is going to lead to improper balance. And then when you fall, it's, it's just your quality of life is at a risk. And if you strength train, there's actually research showing that strength training is probably more important than cardio or aerobic exercise for l- just lifelong longevity. Mm. And I think both are important. Mm -hmm. However, if I had to pick one, I would pick strength training 
because as you age, your muscle fibers are going to shrink. Your muscle stem cells are going to dwindle and their, their regenerative their regenerative abilities are going to be impaired. And if you strength train, you're going to kind of combat that. And it's going to allow you to prevent this frailty or this, this risk of injury and immobilization. Wow. And does strength training impact bone density? Absolutely. Yeah. As long as you're not doing it in the water, if you're doing any weight bearing stuff, that's going to increase your bone mineral density. Wow. And that's huge as you age. And that prevents breaks or fractures. It will help. It will help to prevent that. Yes, absolutely. So diet also helps with that, but strength training, any weight bearing activity. So even just, you know, putting on a backpack and walking outside doing that's huge. That is huge for bone marrow density. And just having a load on your back, you're probably going to gain some muscle with that. Something I hear from <laughs> my wife, she doesn't want to do a lot of strength training sure. because she doesn't want to get big and bulky. But yeah. I always tell her, hey, I don't think that's going to happen. I feel like you really need to look at all the professional bodybuilders. It takes a long time. It takes forever. To get really big and bulky. Yeah. Uh, that is a strong, my, my sister even will, will say that, that I don't want to strength train. I don't want to look bulky and stuff. It, it does not happen like that. Right. Trust me. It, it does not happen like that. Your adaptations, if you want to get big and bulky, just eat a ton of, go to McDonald's, go to Dairy Queen and have a blizzard every day. Like that's, if you want to do that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how, the road to bulky. that's how it happens. Yeah. That's how it happens. <laughs> What strength training is going to do, you're actually, if, if, if your diet is in check, you're actually going to see the opposite. You're going to see a decrease in fat and an increase in muscle mass, which, which is kind of, I don't, I don't mean to brag, but my colleague, Chris, that I mentioned, and I, we pioneered that term in the scientific literature. It's called body recomposition. Wow. Which is pretty sweet. You it, heard it here first. Yeah, exactly. We So we published a paper in 2020. It was called Body Recomposition Can Trained Individuals Lose Fat and Gain Muscle? And we showed that people can. So strength training is key. Having a high-protein diet, key. Sleeping enough. Though These are things that are promoting losing fat and gaining muscle. And just because you strength train and just because, and we talked about this, just because you strength train with six reps or four reps really heavy, that is not at all, going, your, your muscle's not going to think, oh, well, now I'm just going to turn into bulk. I'm going to turn into that like soggy fat muscle. It does not work like that. <laughs> yeah. It does not work like that at all. There's no, there's no extra benefit of, of training higher reps or lower reps for, for losing that fat. It's cause I, cause I told you that train resistance training or strength training in general, it doesn't burn that many calories. So however, if I'm increasing muscle mass, I can hopefully decrease that fat mass with my diet intervention, or maybe I add a little bit of cardio or I'm just more active. So one of the keys, if, if I want body recomposition to happen is when I strength train, I have my protein intake high. I maybe I do a little bit of cardio. I'm sleeping obviously, but something that people don't think about is the non-exercise activity. Something we call it as neat non-exercise activity 
uh, thermogenesis or fat burning. So taking Sunny for a run, walk, doing laundry, going up to just being active over time, that's going to expel a lot of energy and hopefully that will translate to fat mass loss. Nice. So for all of the women listening, it's, you're going to thank yourself later. You're going to feel better about yourself. Your posture will hopefully improve. You'll, you'll feel stronger. You're going to feel better about yourself. And you're not going to look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You're, you're not going to look like that. You're, you're going to hopefully lose a little bit of fat and you're going to build quality muscle that's going to just help you with, you know, getting out of bed in the morning, just, you know, moving. It's going to help you with that. It's going to help you live your life. Yeah. With all of this research, I love it because it applies to people who are experienced bodybuilders, experienced people who are working out because you talk about slow reps and you talk about the amount of reps. And then we talk about the aging population and you have research that applies there. You have research that applies to both men and women. So I, I think you're really onto something and I'm grateful you're here, Jeremy. Any final words? I would just say, I want to thank you for having me on. This has been a great time. And Chris, you're a great dude. It's, it's, it's been awesome. My final thoughts are to just find exercise Find any physical activity. It doesn't even have to, it doesn't have to be strength training. It doesn't have to be cardio. Increase your physical activity by any means possible and enjoy it. Don't do the things that you don't like doing. Find the things you like doing and stay consistent with them. Don't wait until next New Year's, New Year's resolutions to do it. Do it now. I keep telling my dad this because he's had a major injury and he now has a major medical condition that I'm really worried about. And I I yell at him all the time. I want him to be active now. And he's like, well, I'll be active when I retire. (laughs) And I'm morbid, but I I tell him, you're not going to make it that long. You need to. Yeah. So don't push it off. Don't push it off. Find the physical activity that you enjoy doing and stay with it. I'm glad to have you on and you are a natural on the mic. You can communicate well, which is tough when you're talking about this granular scientific study, but I can tell your mom was a public speaking teacher. Shout out to Miss P. She trained you up well, very few verbal fillers, and I was able to understand a lot of it. And I imagine you have a lot more places to stop on your media tour now that you just published your paper. Oh, so. I appreciate that. Yeah. Hopefully if, if you guys want to check it out, please follow me on Instagram or Google my name. If you want to check out that other podcast that I did. Um, but please, I, I, if you are on social media at all and you liked my talk, you liked what I'm doing I highly recommend you follow Chris and then a couple other people that I'll put in the comments below. Yeah, some shout outs. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay, everybody. Well, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Chris.